Yeah, mm-hmm. I love all those. We Molly and I did a kick of horror films that were just like a specific niche creature, like slugs, ticks, things yeah. like that. Have you ever seen the rabbit one? Is it Night of the Lepus? Oh, yeah. I that's almost picked that one, for Arizona Dreams when Marsh. Oh, that's did right. That. Yeah. You brought that up. <laughs> yeah, that one's got yeah. Janet Lee in it. That's another one of those great films where it's like a Hollywood actor or actress in a 70s film just lost, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. Suddenly in a film that's not lit <laughs> and all outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, Slugs. Slugs has some really good gross moments, like mm-hmm. uh, the the guy who eats one, like it. it there's one that gets into like a, a head of lettuce, and his wife makes like salads. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. And she like slices it up, and then he eats it, and then he's at like a business luncheon, and then his like fucking face like melts. <laughs> like he's like, I got a headache or something. <laughs> And he takes a sip of his cocktail and then just like fake blood just like drips into oh. the cocktail and then his head explodes. Yeah. I got a headache. Yeah. I don't feel so good. <laughs> Melts. Melts in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, slugs is a lot of fun. Oh, I think I think there's also worms is like the shitty slugs. What's that one? I think it's called or squirm. Something like that. Well, we were talking, we were making fun of James Gunn, I think, like last week or the week before. Oh. And Squirm is his yeah. take on slugs. So not, not like Squirm is what I'm thinking. I wonder Crawl? what that is. No, I feel like it's, it is like Earthworms. Earthworm Jim. Mm. Oh, no, it is. It's called Squirm. It's like the OG Squirm from OG 1976. Squirm. It's not very good. It has like a couple decent deaths. Uh, Swarm, that's the killer bees. Did you ever see that one? Swarm, I think it's called. It's like all these African killer bees that come to the States. And like, uh, that's Exorcist 2, Heretic. Well, yeah, it's in that as well. But <laughs> No. I yeah, haven't Swarm. seen that one, but there's one bee horror movie I've seen with John Carradine that's pretty funny. Unless it is he's that. Is that Swarm? If he's, in, he's swarm, in Swarm, it's that. Oh, no, he's in one called The Bees. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, hell yeah. Wow. I'm way behind on my monster viewing compared to you guys. You know? <laughs> Creature features. I've only seen Chud. Hey, Chud's great. It is. Chud's great. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. It's hot. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me is... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. We come on here and we have it out. It's episode 107 and we are uh, battening down the hatches... And going deep 
into the sea tonight. The topic was the abyss, underwater cinema, submersible cinema, something we haven't really done on the podcast at all, unless you count that musical number from Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Um, you know, we've glided on top of the ocean in such films as uh, White Squall, uh, but never really... <laughs> gone underwater and that's what we're doing here tonight uh and boy they certainly delivered we 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 did it in both films in various degrees and we'll i think have a lot of fun talking about uh the different approaches to underwater material here tonight uh but let's just uh get started ryan you had the earlier film why don't you tell us what ocean you brought yeah well, it's funny. The very first thing that popped into my head was when I was thinking about underwater photography, I was thinking about the all-time bland, boring underwater fights from the James Bond film Thunderball, um, which I think is like the epitome of how boring those those movies were, and they capture something very British uh, in, their, in their boredom of like a 60s spy film, just totally undynamic dudes swimming underwater, just some bubbles, really bland. It's like in slow mode, dude. Totally, yeah. It has some fun qualities, but yeah, so no, I mean, I scrapped that idea obviously very quickly, but when I was thinking about visions of the depths, visions of abysses, of just the ocean floor in general, my mind started thinking about, you know, because one of my first instincts is I always try to go really far back. Whenever I get a topic, especially with something as specific as this, I think, what are like the earliest cinematic representations of this? But then I started thinking about how there are a lot of, you know, undersea exploration movies from the 20s and the 30s, and it is kind of this, like, storybook idea of capturing it and how it looks. But then I was really reflecting on when was it first captured for real? And I was just thinking about the technology of underwater cameras, because most of this stuff is shot in tanks, you know? And then I was remembering, of course... Jacques Cousteau, who pioneered capturing the depths and inventing cameras and gear to, to get him down to the ocean floor and to get it on film for the first time and beautiful, colorful French film stock. So that's the avenue I decided to go down. I went with The Silent World from 1956, which is co-directed by Jacques Cousteau and Louis Malle. This film, funny enough, uh, won the Palme d'Or and it was the only documentary to have won the Palme d'Or until uh, Mr. Michael Moore came to That's town right. with his Fahrenheit 9-11, which I think is, like, extremely funny. This is also, like, a classic, you know, Oscar-winning doc. I think all three, or maybe at least two, of the Jacques Cousteau, like, feature documentaries were, were, were Oscar gold winners. And, you know, I was... One of the reasons, too, I was really attracted to this, of course, is I figured maybe some people would be interested to learn a little bit more about him with the new Wes Anderson film out, because for those who maybe aren't familiar with Jacques Cousteau, I think one of the easiest reference points was he was sort of honored and spoofed in the Wes Anderson film The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and I think that's a really good aesthetic reference point for what this movie looks and feels like. This movie is a bunch of, like, extremely tan... Uh, good-looking Frenchmen uh, in Speedos wearing red caps very often, as they do in The Life Aquatic, and they are sailing the seas in their beautiful boat, the Calypso. This film explores the Mediterranean Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, and in the Indian Ocean. 
and Jacques Cousteau is the captain of this ship, and he is leading his crew into various uh, explorations of the coral reef, capturing some <laughs> samples through some uh, curious means, I would say. And um, it's sort of just like them hanging out and explaining how they, you know, accomplished these things. You know, Jacques Cousteau himself was a co-inventor of like one of the OG aqua lungs that allowed for underwater exploration to be something that could be done durationally. You know, for a while, divers couldn't be underwater for, for very long. And yeah, I mean, this film from the 50s does feature the deepest photography that had been captured at that point. I can't remember how many meters it is, but they do acknowledge it in the film. Like, this is the deepest a camera has ever been in the depths capturing this footage. I think they go down, like, 50 meters in the film or something yeah. like that, mm -hmm. which is quite far for just, like, guys. <laughs> totally. <laughs> down there, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of time dedicated to that experience of going down to the depths, what that does to your body, how your body reacts, and sort of different precautions you have to take into consideration. He did follow this film up with a film called The World Without Sun, which also looks pretty interesting, and they go much deeper in that one, not them uh, <laughs> diving themselves. They're in a submersible, but they get down like maybe like five, 800 meters, somewhere in that range with like cameras rigged on the exteriors of submersibles. But yeah, I mean, he was just someone who was constantly inventing and reinventing himself because he got a lot of, you know, backlash <laughs> for this film and he did eventually kind of pivot to being more of a conservation-focused guy because, uh, you know, this film is very cute and beautiful at times. It's just, like, full of eye candy, eye-popping color of the coral reef and it's also unbelievably shocking and terrifying when you see these mid-century men using dynamite to blow up the coral reef, saying like, well, this is really the only way we can get samples of this kind of stuff. Clubbing sharks for what they describe as like a deep-seated revenge that all fishermen have in their bones. <laughs> all throughout, they are doing outrageous stuff. So, you know, we'll, we'll detail that together because that, you know, I knew its reputation going in and I still walked away thinking like, dear God, these guys should be, they definitely should get a fine. I don't know if they should go to jail, but yeah, they, uh, they should be charged further crimes but yeah he was a man who definitely pivoted and was like oh okay i i see the error in my ways and he became a little bit of a celebrity he had a tv show uh he was also an author this book it, this film itself is sort of him adapting a book that became extremely popular uh also called the silent world and yeah i had a lot of fun it was uh, fun being on the ship with all these guys their cute little dog uh and you know with the detours into the terrors of um, how scientists used to behave <laughs> in their ignorance, um, even beyond that, it's it's a it's a beautiful picture. So that's the Silent World from 1956. Thank you very much, Andy. Why don't you tell us about the abyss that you brought? Well, it's funny that you mention the abyss. You know, I think when a lot of people think of you know great underwater films, uh, that film. The Abyss by James Cameron comes to mind. It's certainly at the at the top of many people's lists. And and again, I mean, it is quite stunning and it's it's quite an achievement. Um, and there was a lot of like groundbreaking technology also involved in the making of that film. I mean, they had to invent certain rigs and new types of 
uh, apparati. Is that the plural of apparatus? Sounds good. Good enough for me. Uh, for you know, holding cameras so that they could shoot underwater. Um, I mean, really, it was a it was quite a feat. But that's not the film that I chose. <laughs> I chose a film that is a knockoff of The Abyss. You see, when The Abyss was in production, uh, there was actually a lot of talk in Hollywood. So people were, were kind of following this insane production that uh, James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd were, were undertaking. And so a lot of uh, lesser prestige filmmakers, but also some who have a connection to James Cameron. Uh, one particularly, Roger Corman, who sort of gave James Cameron his first job. They, they saw what was coming down the pipeline and they rushed to get a lot of other underwater sci-fi horror films in the pipeline to try to beat them to the punch. It's a classic Roger Corman move. Um, so really in the years 1989 to 1990, there were like a string of these sort of abyss, you know, cheapo B pictures trying to cash in on the buzz that was being generated. And I've seen a lot of those. Um, but there's one that I hadn't seen that had been, uh, I'd seen people on Letterboxd saying, hey, you got to check this one out. So I figured, you know, knowing that Ryan was was looking at, you know, life under the sea, I could also look at life under the sea, but from a very different perspective, one of schlock horror, of grotesque body horror. And I chose a film called The Rift from 1990, directed by Juan Piquet Simon, I think is how you pronounce his name in Spanish, but in the sort of Spanish-American horror co-productions he made a lot of times, he was credited as J.P. Simon. Uh, this is, yes, in many respects, a hodgepodge of a lot of other better and more successful horror and sci-fi films that had come out throughout the 1980s. It's sort of a mashup of The Thing, Aliens, The Abyss, all of these things kind of get, get thrown into a nice blender by Mr. J.P. Simon uh, to give us the very goopy, very gory, very messy, and I think very fun film that we've got to look at here alongside Mr. Cousteau's uh, this film follows uh, uh, a guy by the name of Wick Hayes, <laughs> one of the great, <laughs> one of my new all-time favorite. Before there was names. John Wick, yeah, there, there was Wick Hayes. Yeah, yeah. Before there was John Wick, there was Wick Hayes, who is a sort of bad boy submarine designer. I guess is kind of how <laughs> yeah. he's introduced to us, played by Jack Scalia who is just some, I guess, soap opera guy, really. That was his big claim to fame, was being on, like, every soap opera throughout the 1980s and 90s. I'd believe it. And he has designed this, this groundbreaking submarine, the Siren, the Siren 1, for some shadowy corporation called Contech or something like that. And its mission is to go to one of the deepest points of the ocean and do some research. Well, guess what? The Siren 1 has... 
met some sort of disaster. It's gone missing, they've lost contact. So they're organizing a rescue slash fact-finding mission with the Siren 2. And Wick Hayes is enlisted or I guess sort of bullied into going by contact by the corporation as the expert of the Siren 1 to sort of just, I guess, help, you know, to just be a handsome, handsome bad boy helper. Uh, and he goes on board this sub with some really, really great and some really, really bad character actors. Uh, some of the greats would include Arlie Ermey as a facsimile of his character from Full Metal Jacket, but now as a submarine captain. And uh, uh, Twin Peak Het, Twin Peak fan favorite, Twin Peaks fan favorite, Ray Wise as Robbins, the computer expert. And uh, they all set off to the bottom of the ocean, to the deepest part of the ocean to find the Siren One, but they find a whole lot more than that. They find, I guess, well, that's what we're going to discuss. What exactly they find. <laughs> they find a lot of stuff down there. They find killer seaweed. They find mutant babies. They find corporate, oh, yeah. corporate espionage. They find <laughs> body horror galore down there. Uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, it is, as I was describing, I mean, it's just like a knockoff. I mean, you could put all those things together, and I'm sure you can imagine what this movie's like. And and yes, you would. But I would say this. Uh, J.P. Simon, uh, he is a guy who could take a shoestring budget and, and, and wrench your money's worth out of it. Because this film has a very plotting start. It seems like it takes forever for them to arrive at the titular rift. But it when really they does. do, oh man, it certainly delivers a lot of thrills in a very short amount of time. And yeah, you know, like I said, I've seen a lot of these sort of undersea creature features uh, alongside the abyss. There's uh, George P. Cosmatos Leviathan. There's Deep Star Six. Roger Corman, as I said, got his pumped out to try to beat Cameron to the punch. Uh, the Evil Below, I think, is the one that he made. I haven't seen that one. Lords of the Deep is another one. I've seen, like, almost all of them, minus the Corman. And this, I have to say, I think is now my favorite of the bunch. And yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to put it in conversation with the Cousteau film, especially when thinking about the ethics of... Yeah. <laughs> undersea exploration and the horrors, or as you said, the terrors that we can find in the ocean. And, and I, I think it's going to be interesting to, to sort of measure which film is actually the more horrific of what we see transpiring. But yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a really fun double feature. So yeah, that's The Rift from 1990. Thank you very much. Yeah, what a double feature, as always. Um, I, you know, this was going to be, I thought, an interesting week for me because although I picked the topic, uh, I'm kind of, like, scared of the ocean, and I don't seek out a lot of, like, underwater stuff because uh, it kind of creeps me out just on a sort of, like, human level. Um, I can handle subs fine, but, like, just being underwater, you know, in the deep, you know, like uh, like we see in, in these movies and especially Cousteau gives me the, the heebie-jeebies, you know, there's too many moving <laughs> things uh, down there. You could never be one of those like sponge fishermen in France no, in the 50s. Not a chance. 
I thought it looked pretty fun. <laughs> Despite Ooh. the fact that they all end up like t- completely disabled and wrecked, uh, seemingly. <laughs> yes, they do. It seems very dangerous. But um, I was thinking, you know, one funny thing that sort of struck me about these movies is we have, you know, Cousteau in the 1950s, in the post-war period, like exploring and, and you know, developing underwater technology, right? Like this stuff costs money. You know, it's like the same discussion we had about oh, how do you have a storm in a film or how do you have a fire in a film? Like, it's really hard. It's really in most of the time, you know, something that's very expensive. Right. And so, uh, it's something that, you know, people had to fake until guys like Jacques Cousteau, you know, came along. And so then I was thinking about like the history of like fakery and water and it's like, go all the way back, uh, to like Edison making Spanish American war movies, like simulating boat, like naval battles or whatever. And I'm thinking like with JP Simon, we're going back, to the origins oh, of yeah. underwater cinema, you know, the fucking rubber ducky in the tub, you know, <laughs> like that's yeah. what we're going back to because like there's all these submarine submersible shots, which are just this in this guy's fucking bathroom. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like that's what, that's what it is. Wind up um, toys. And then on the other hand, yeah, we've got these like real daredevils um, actually sort of, you know, going where no one's gone before with their color underwater cameras and lights, their lighting underwater Ooh. scenes in the Cousteau film, you know? So I just thought it was funny that we have, you know, on the one hand, this like totally fake approach. And on the other hand, I don't want to say totally real because the film, is very much a fictional construct. There's scenes they act out. There's mm-hmm. there's all kinds of fanciful stuff going on, but uh, such a stark contrast, uh, you know, to those approaches. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the rift is really a, as much as it is like trying to, as I, I mentioned, like cash in on the particular moment of like, you know, late 80s undersea sci-fi horror I see the rift as really a throwback to like almost like 1950s creature features. Yeah. You know, it has a very similar kind of energy and, and actually was reminding me of uh, a film that we watched beyond the time barrier with that same level of like taking a shoestring budget and trying to, to swing for the fences, you know, to try to shoot for the moon. And even if you miss, you land in the stars. So I guess in this case, like shoot for the Marianas trench. And even if you miss you, you're (laughs) going to wind up in deep water somewhere. But, but yeah, that very like handmade quality, you know? Yeah. I feel like it has the same amount of sets as beyond the time barrier. There's the submarine set, there's the caves set, and there's the bathtub that he used to (laughs) shoot all of his toys. in. (laughs) yeah, it is funny when the film like pivots to being, stuck in a submarine to then being stuck in a cave and then like having that be the primary set i was curious to see where they would end up as they go deeper and deeper and deeper because i wasn't sure you know could he have afforded to just do all this stuff in a tank you know i i wasn't sure where the film was actually going to take us i knew we wouldn't just be stuck in the sub the whole time um but of course no tanks would require a lot more work and a lot more money and it wouldn't even really be worth it as we said with thunderball like it's pretty boring just watching yeah. people yeah. like try and act out full scenes uh it's if the it's ultimate not real. low budget movie hack he's just like and then there's a cavern yeah. And then they just walk around. Yeah. You know? Like, exactly. It, it really is from a filmmaking perspective. Yeah. Genius. Spe- <laughs> yeah. Specifically, as 
As Ray Weiss' character says, they discover a recessed, naturally pressurized subterranean cavern. Amazing. Yeah. This total scientific anomaly. They found it. And then, like, yeah, I love the spicing it up by having it instead of them just wandering and exploring they of course are like giving it purpose by cross-cutting with ray wise giving them directions because their their sonar or their radar or whatever is like capturing 90 feet in front of them at a time and you know he's it's like the matrix he's like okay take a left take a right you know he's following them on their journey um it's it's inventive low budget filmmaking you know I've, of course i think like one of the obvious connections is that since these are like expedition based movies, you know, we have crews, right? And of course we have very different crews, but both films are about the crews, you know, like, yeah, we have our main character, soap opera guy, you know, Wick, uh, but there's a, a large cast in the rift that we sort of get uh, in that style. Like Andy mentioned, you know, it's like, it's got a, the thing feeling, you yeah. know, right. Especially with skeets, right. It's yeah. like, he feels like Knolls, like it's the same, like token black guy humor, kind of like offensive at times. Uh, but that group dynamic again, had me thinking of the fifties. It had me thinking of that. Right. And again, the thing, is a remake of a 50s movie about these people like trapped in a low budget set you know and it's like <laughs> what can we do here um and i appreciated that you know the group dynamic uh of it it also helps out that you know being this is an international co-production right this is like a spanish american co-production uh with a spanish director uh it's a nato mission so you can make sure that you get <laughs> you don't have to just pay for wow. american talent you yeah. can get people from all over europe you know speaking of international co-productions ryan did you read about some of the financing for silent world no i didn't actually Okay, I don't know if it was directly, you know, related to the film, but, you know, a good deal of Cousteau's expeditions in the 50s were funded by British Petroleum. Um, mm. And so there's like that aspect as well that I think is is interesting to also read into some of the darker aspects of the film. Like you mentioned the blowing up of the coral reef with dynamite, which is obviously like a big, a big no, no. And they say, you know, Oh, well it's very regrettable, but we're doing it for science and we're doing it for a census. And they, for what, you know, they don't say, yeah. right. And it's like yeah. for BP, you know, like did BP tell you to, to, tell you to do this? <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, you just wonder. Um, and there is like, BP product placement. Yeah, there's a barrel in the film. I mean, there is a very <laughs> prominent BP labeled barrel that we see taken onto a boat somewhere. I don't know what that was. So that. you've got you know BP, and then you've got Contech, which to me read as you know a complete alien ripoff. You know, throw alien in the discussion here because it's like the ra the you know the salvage job. Go find the other ship. Yeah, uh, Wayland Utani Corp. Exactly, and they're dude Contech. I mean. Come <laughs> <laughs> Come on, like, so funny. It's funny that the names of Jacques Cousteau's underwater villages that he developed were called Con Shelf. And it was Con Shelf <laughs> 1, 2, and 3. And I was thinking about that with the siren 1, 2, and 3, you know. But yeah, I actually, when I was trying to do research on the silent world, I find myself going down a rabbit hole about Jacques Cousteau's brother, who was a fascist that Jacques uh, distanced himself from over the years. Yeah. And he, like, received the, the death penalty. He, he, well, he, he was uh, sentenced to death, but he ended up not being 
killed. He ended up being let go. Uh, but crazy, yeah. He, his Jacques Cousteau's brother was a full on like this is our the the white man's last chance is yeah. is the Nazis. Like they there's they have some regrettable practices, but this is our last effort here. To- well, I was gonna I, I wasn't sure if we were gonna venture into this territory, but I was gonna bring up that you know Cousteau developed the first scuba uh, during World War II yeah. that he was sitting out. Yeah, like. He That's did. not a good sign, you know. <laughs> I, if if I'm not mistaken, I thought he did. It's 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 somewhat like vague, but he was originally like a member of the French Navy, like he was a right. naval officer. And I thought that he did participate somewhat later in the war in uh, commando operations, like helping oh. develop, like if not directly, like indirectly, like because. World War Two was the 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 beginning of like the Frogman of like underwater warfare, like where like Navy SEALs like that was when they were first like developed near the end of World War Two is like UDTs, right? Underwater demolition teams they were known, and I thought that Cousteau, if I'm not mistaken, had something to do with that, right? Maybe it's classified. Yeah, I'm trying to like find it right now, but I did read that, so I think that definitely happened. He he did help with commando raids using some of his gear. Yeah, he did like help with the invention of like certain underwater swimming goggles and things like that. So he was, you know, he was like a consultant on the war. Talk about a frog man, right? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Apologies to all of our French listeners. Sorry, wow. Yeah. Sorry. Couldn't yeah. resist. Wow. You know, <laughs> I uh, I honestly had no idea that Louis Maul uh, began his career working with Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, that was such a shock to me. And it was even more of a shock when I looked up Louis Maul and I was like, well, he he was only six. You know, he was like 64 when he died. And then I'm thinking like, this guy made movies in the mid 50s. And then I'm doing the math and going like, Wow, so he co-directed this when he was like 23, and then he made, you know, Elevator to the Gallows when he was like 24 or 5, which is crazy too, because he also, the same year Silent World came out, another film he worked on came out, A Man Escaped. Oh, wow. What a year. Yeah. (laughs) Guys all over the place. I know, dude. Can you, going from Cousteau's boat to Brisson's set which he was like AD on that film, uh, wild times. But I do got to say, I mean, I was thoroughly impressed with Silent World's colors, construction, angles, um, and it seemed pretty much like a one-man band, you know? It's like they've got the underwater photography guys, and then Maul's just on top, capturing everything that way. And I think it's a, yeah, it's a very fun, vibrant, sort of engaging movie on a visual level. Yeah, uh, I think the, the scenes themselves are all really good. As you mentioned, there was a lot of recreation and reconstruction of things that were probably in the book that he wrote about their expeditions. And then also just they clearly grabbed some footage on the fly of something that happened. And then they shot extra footage around that event to make it cohesive for the cinema, of course. But even very near the beginning, I was really having a laugh when they were describing how the human body reacts to the depths as they go farther down and pressure and how there are bad signs where you know you have to be breathing at a similar rate as the as you go farther down into the depths and the nitrogen balance and how if you come up way too fast your joints can lock up and there's all these sort of things that happen and there's a great early scene when someone does this 
like come up too fast and he's sitting on the boat uh, and he's complaining to Jacques Cousteau that his joints have all locked up and Jacques Cousteau is like, tell me what happened. And then there's a mixture of potentially maybe footage they captured when that happened or it's just a full-on recreation. But it's so funny because yeah, so you get like a little flashback within this documentary and then that guy, to me, it felt like he was being punished. He clearly wasn't being punished, but the doctor assesses that he needs to go in this, like, tube uh, to, like, be depressurized so his body can get back to normal. And so they, like, lock him up on the boat while all the other guys go down to eat, like, the beautiful bright red lobster that he had just, like, wrecked his body in an effort to yeah. fish for. And that's, like, extremely funny. So that I thought that that was, like, there's great filmmaking on a scene-by-scene level at many moments in this film, outside of just the beautiful nature photography. Yeah, I I was surprised because I'm obviously, you know, very familiar with Jacques Cousteau. I mean, you know, I think people of a a certain age, you know, Cousteau is is a very recognizable, very recognizable, like, figure, even if you aren't, uh, you don't have a lot of experience actually like watching his yeah. his films or reading his books or something. And I, I think I'd seen like snippets and interviews over the years and excerpts and this, that, or the other. But but this was, I think, the first time I'd ever actually sat down and watched a Cousteau film. Uh, and I didn't really know what to expect going in. I just thought it was just going to be a lot of sort of like disembodied footage. But I was very surprised, as you've been both describing, like how much narrative there actually is in this, you know, exploration of the wonders mm-hmm. of, of the sea. And and not just, like, narrative in the, you know, like, David Attenborough way, where he's just going to invent some stories about animals, you know, but, but a narrative of the men, of the crew, as you were sort of describing earlier, Marsh, because as much as this is about the ocean, it's about the men. It's about their experience just doing whatever they're doing. In my view, like, wreaking havoc all over the ocean, <laughs> to be honest with you. Like, but it follows, like, their journey, their 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 struggles, their dramas, their, their moments of humor, their moments of tenderness, their connections. I mean, it really is a, a story, a journey that we follow throughout the film. It almost feels like that's why there are all those moments of the insane havoc that they are wreaking on the ocean floor and on these islands. Because I kept thinking while watching some of this stuff, I'm, I'm like, this is just unambiguous in the way that it makes you guys like not look great. I mean, if you're standing on top of sea turtles uh, on an island and just riding them around with your full weight, that's clearly very mean oh <laughs> and just God. like in poor taste. But I kept thinking, why did they include it? I mean, they think it's hilarious. Yeah, dude. they do. They do. They, <laughs> they think fu- it's like listen, great. Yeah, like it's the French, dude. They still occupied Algeria when this film totally. came out. All right, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. you have to understand the French imperial mindset, right? Yeah, it's they dominate everything. I mean, it's funny for all the 
you know, horrors in this film, particularly the, the shark attack scene. Uh, the thing that I think bothered Kyle the most was the treatment of the goddamn turtles. Just, you know, like they're riding these turtles on land. They're riding these turtles on sea. And these turtles are fucking struggling. Yeah, they dude. do not look I mean, happy like, at all. <laughs> but yeah, it comes across very like, yeah, these guys just dominate whatever space they go into and don't think anything. Don't think twice yeah. about it. Yeah. Imperialists of the ocean floor. Yeah. Well, well yeah. and specifically, you know, going back to this thing you mentioned, uh, this, this idea of revenge, you know, the French also... You know, they got something to prove, you know? World War II isn't too far away from this film. And, you know, they they had there was a perception about the French and their their, you know, tough guy spirit throughout yeah. that experience. So it's almost like they're coming back out trying to prove yeah. their chads, you know? Like, but they're just sitting on turtles. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I love my favorite example of them, like, prove, you know? of them like, yeah, having trying to have something to prove and prove themselves as chads is when they do see all those whales and they're like, oh, Dumas, you know, he like, he felt something in his blood. He felt like that ancient blood of being a whaler, like awaken in him. And, you know, you see him grab a harpoon and and it's like they're sperm whales and it's like he's just like not getting it. You know, the, the harpoons keep bouncing off the back. But there is something about creating this myth of like they have this fisherman blood in them. This is natural. This is just how it goes. Natural selection. Like we are old French fishermen. You know, it's a great yeah. legacy that we're honoring. Yeah. Animal cruelty is like a mod very modern concept. Totally. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the cinema. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. In contrast to the sort of like tender, you know, despite all this like, yes, ugly sort of like macho stuff, like, yeah, like we love these guys. These guys are awesome. Oh, yeah. They're so fucking sunburned and lanky, gangly, like sea French guys, like chowing down on their lobster. Like you can only respect them, uh, even if they are barbarians. Yeah, you know? yeah I, and I love these guys. Yeah. It was a different time. Right. <laughs> and, and like Andy said, it comes across like you get Cousteau's, you know, it's his ideal, you know, vision of what they are and what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it is tender and it is like really lovely how they all take care of each other and like have each other's backs and stuff. And then on the other hand, in the rift. Uh, there's a sort of serious like disconnect, I think, between like all of the characters, which was really funny to me in a very genre film way. And I think no more like glaringly obvious than, you know, shoehorned into the film is the fact that Wick's uh, ex-wife uh, <laughs> is also sent aboard because she's a naval officer and she's like Arlie Ermey's like right hand. And this at the beginning, it's like, oh, and my ex-wife's coming. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking like, oh, where's this headed? And then it just is headed absolutely nowhere. Yeah. It's just unbelievable Dude. how that's just not really has anything to do with the film. Like they had, they do have like a moment but it just doesn't resonate at all because there's like no relationship between them at all. It's, it's incredible stuff. Amazing. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you picked up on that too, because I started this film and this is one that I like I came across when I was doing research and like had considered. Uh also because I had seen some of the other films by this filmmaker and when Andy's like, I was looking at this, I was like, hey, that, that could be a lot of fun. Slugs, man. But when it started, when it started. Those first 15 minutes, I was like, oh, shit, this is, yeah. like, this is fucking really bad. 
Like, this, this is, is <laughs> this is like interminable. <laughs> and I, I was getting, like, the ADR was really shitty. Like, there was no characterization. Like, everything looked like junk. The movie, the opening credits are, like, playing over the characters' faces before we even get a chance to meet them. And there's dialogue happening. It's insane. It has, like, such a sloppy intro. But I got really nervous when it was setting up the stage for the thing with the ex-wife, when they were trying to give this guy some backstory. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I just kept thinking, like, JP, get over it. Let it go. Like, just abandon these threads. I want nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. And then he does. He did, he and did. the movie fucking gets really good. And I, I was so tickled because it was halfway through when I realized, like, oh, this rocks. Like, I really like this movie. And I was realizing it's because he gave up all that dead air. I was really nervous that so much of the movie was going to be just bullshit B threads of all those guys on the sub. And it's not that. The movie just shifts gears and is full on just scenes. Stuff happens. It takes like 40 minutes for him to flip that switch. And (laughs) and that is, for anyone interested in checking this film out, it's like the best advice I can give you is just hang in there. Like hang in there. This is it. And, And I think it makes sense in that construction because this was you know like a co-production it was co-written and it's very clear what his interests and his talents are like where where those talents lay and you can almost sort of assume that this script was sort of compiled with multiple writers i mean it certainly was and that there was this sort of again attempt at being like An American movie, a Hollywood movie. What do Hollywood movies have? You know, this is 1990, right? It's like the ex-wife bullshit. It's like, that's just ripped straight out of fucking Die Hard, right? It's like, well, we've got our bad boy gruff hero. Now we got to also give him that. You know, we got to dangle the love interest and also... It's the late 80s, early 90s. It should be about the the collapse of the American family too, right? Just throwing all (laughs) that kind of crap in there. Yeah. But yeah, then it suddenly, it's like... Then then it's suddenly a J.P. Simon movie, you know, and he's like, all right, like it's just going to be nonsensical gore, just uh, one after the other one, one other like set piece after another of just like a body turning into mush. And like, yeah, that shit is is so fucking good. But you it's really so do. Good. You've got to slog through. You've got to wade through all that other crap in the beginning. I specifically wrote down, the first thing I wrote down was, it's the intro, and we're watching a car parallel park. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're in trouble, you know? like That's like the first image of a film, is a car pulls up to a house, and then it cuts to a closer shot of it parallel parking. And I'm just thinking like, not how you like to see a movie start. No, <laughs> you know? no, no. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it eventually gets there. Um, it gets to the goop, you know, and that's uh, that's where the goodness is. Yes. And it's and like the- inspired goop. Oh, yeah. You know, it's good I goop. mean, it's like very creative creature effects. They put a lot of time and effort into it. I was really impressed. There was a great deal of variety. It wasn't just a handful of things that kept getting repeated in front of us. Yeah, like the uh, 
the the Cousteau film. I mean, we get we get treated to several different species, several mm. different varieties, <laughs> <Yeah>. catalog <laughs> of creatures. I mean, and again, you know, it's like we mentioned the thing. It's it's I, I, it's clearly right. It's just it's taking all these little bits and pieces, and that's very much an element that that kind of gets gets you know liberated from John Carpenter's The Thing is that the creature isn't necessarily a creature it's a process of genetic alteration that's taking place which allows them to have so much more you know creativity to have all these different flourishes with you know and then they encounter this thing and then they encounter that thing and then suddenly there's a giant fucking starfish you know i mean like they are all over the place and you know speaking of the the creature effects the guy that was in charge of the creature effects on this is a dude by the name of colin arthur and just doing a glance through his filmography of his other work in special effects and creatures uh, one of the biggest films that people might recognize is conan the barbarian he had done work in the special effects for that film but uh colin arthur is a returning gauntlet champion colin arthur was in charge of the special effects for of all things, Derfan. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like, just like the statue. I was trying to figure it out. I was like, well, I the mean, there were, there were some like gore effects, yeah. very like minimal, but there were gore effects in in Derfan. She like caves his skull. Like, yeah, you know? yeah. It's yeah. Like there, a, there's like a brutal murder scene. Right? And doesn't Where, she like cut him up into pieces to put in the fridge? Yes. Doesn't that happen? Yes. Oh, the dismemberment oh right. Well. The whole saw, yeah, the yeah. real sawing hours. Yeah. Yeah. So Colin Arthur, the guy there behind all the creature effects here, was was uh, you know on that film. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah. I mean, shit. the turning point of the rift is when that giant, like albino sea monster wraps itself around the sub and like radically increases the pressure on it and you see like his big eyeballs being picked up by the like security cameras that they have around the sub that i wasn't expecting this movie to have things that looked that insane and that's when i realized i was gonna have a good time because it is like this really thin floaty just bizarre looking Viscous. creatures, pure white. Yeah. And it seems like something that has no bones. How could it possibly be squeezing like that? But yeah, the way it wraps itself around, that was like good bathtub effects, the way they used that, that monster. Well, that that immediately follows, again, another linkage between the two films, uh, a diver, a diver exiting the sub and they they get to the rift. And yes, Sven, I, I wrote down like the Swedish chef in a fucking diver suit, you know, because the actor who I don't think is actually Swedish is doing a a abysmal <clears throat> no pun intended swedish like accent i mean he really does sound like the swedish chef he's like i'm going to do the deepest dive ever i mean like that's what he says man deepest dive ever and the captain picks you over me man has superior judgment squid face and this film 
again, you know, not to one up Cousteau, but they announce as this guy is exiting the sub that this will be the deepest dive ever by a human. Yeah. And did you catch? Did you catch the feet that they, how many feet they said that he was going to be diving at? It's like twenty three thousand meters. I thought he said forty five thousand feet. Yeah, maybe we're that's we're well, doing. The, yeah, somewhere around there. It's insane. Yeah. Which is deeper than the Marianas Trench. The Marianas Trench is only like thirty eight thousand feet. Yeah. So no, in this, this guy movie, would have been like vaporized. He would yeah. have been so dead. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, that's like a, fu- a funny comparison is I kept thinking, like, especially the way the interior of their, you know, the Siren 2 is shot. It's like very, like, static and calming. It's got this, like, blue light, you know, and it's like no one is affected at all by going all the like going so far down into the ocean <laughs> like you know nothing is happening to these people at all even when they go outside like no. it's so funny how it, like in yeah in silent world it's like you went down 50 meters like you got the bends and tried to commit suicide yeah. like <laughs> we had to take we had to take you back up you know like and everyone in fucking jp simon's world is just like doing their experiments you yeah. know like sexually harassing each other yeah. just you know, just chilling. I mean, it's so calming. And speaking know? of that interior, I, I what I love about this kind of just like just just movie that really just doesn't give a shit about anything like that. Like the impossible architecture of this submarine had me like laughing when I really like you know took a step back from it because I mean submarines are not big they are very cramped everything is just smashed together i mean you cannot have a a massive vessel like that under the sea and this is like the the like the command center room that they're in it's like it's hilariously big i mean it's so big that there's just dead space everywhere this is like a skeleton crew it's also like why is this thing so big they're all like they all have like 15 feet between each other on this thing and there's i even think there's like a part where they're going up and down like a big ass staircase like to go from one level to the next yeah there are yeah like suggesting that there are rooms that big like just below two that that main control room really looked like satan's headquarters in stay tuned it looked like of a similar scale and scope with all their Mm -hmm. tech you know i was thinking too just like now that i said the word tech out loud i it wouldn't it be like a really fun job to be the person who did the animations for fake computers in 90s movies when they're doing all that fake technology like i mentioned with ray wise following them with the sonar and there's their their little icons their little squares on this computer screen it'd be fun to be the person that like designed the that fake art because obviously there's no software that resembles that or looks anything like that or functions that got way something like that you know well the see his is cool though because their stuff's all analog right and i i was really impressed with that that there was so much time dedicated in the silent world to showing how their analog gear worked yeah. you know especially when they're doing the sonar and they're measuring things and they're trying to make estimates about what they're encountering i mean they're looking for some sunken treasure too i guess if you want to call it that they go after a boat that's been missing and they're also using similar gear you know um but yeah the analog quality was really cool yeah the 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 one instrument that they were using and i forget exactly what it was but i i think it was something it was somehow sonar based to like map the ocean floor 
Yeah. And it created this sort of like chart. Um, and using the sonar, it was drawing lines and it was doing it with pencil on paper. Yeah. Like that shit, I was just loving that. I was so fascinated by that. It yeah, was I was thinking it would make like really nice wall art or just even wallpaper because i was thinking about what do they do with i mean i don't maybe they erase it i don't know it's just graphite but i was thinking it looked really nice having these charts and imagining like putting them all along your wall meanwhile there's just like all kinds of like you know tech gobbledygook in this command oh. center that that no one even glances at you know <laughs> i mean yeah i mean like there, it's just like a series of scenes where they're like we've encountered this problem and you know wick will be like well, I'm the I'm the inventor of the submarine, so I have an immediate like technical solution to this. And then Ray Wise is like, I'm the computer guy. I also have a solution to this. Yeah. Like there's no like struggling. It's just like Arlie Ermey has to be like, uh, yeah, you. And yet you they, do it. Yeah, and yet he still has to chew everybody out, you know? Like I mean, yeah, Nick saves the day. And it's like for his troubles, he gets like Arlie Ermey being like, see me in my quarters or whatever, you know? <laughs> and he's like, you can't go off on your own like that. We're a team. But you did good, so okay. you got to pass. That performance to me was also fascinating because I think by the end of the film, I just saw Arlie Ermey as like a, a dad. Yeah. It was, it was like truly bizarre to me because you expect him to like go hard and like he, he starts out, he's got his big speech. Yeah. You they know? give him like the full metal jacket moment. Yeah. He gets to like, you know, bust the crew's chops a little bit. Exactly. Know? And then he just kind of like chills out. Yeah. And then he's just like a good member of the team. Yeah. He's like genuinely concerned for the well-being of yeah. everybody. And then involved. he's got like a lot of hair and no hat on a lot of the time. So I'm just like who is this man? You know, it was very disorienting for me just to see Arlie Ermey like nod, like he, the drill sergeant like dissolved yeah. as the movie went on. It was so peculiar. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's like, it, it, I can't emphasize enough how this feels like two different films from the first half to the second half for a lot of reasons, yeah. you know? And yeah, maybe it was just because like, they knew what they were doing when they got to the second half, you know? And it's sort of like, that's when everything starts to hum and click, you know? It's like, there's like genuine threats. There's palpable threats. There's things that people can see and, and shoot and explode. And, and they have to like fix something. But that whole first half is just this like long meandering journey to the bottom of the ocean. And everyone's just kind of, ribbing each other but but not comfortable with each other yeah it's it's almost as if it feels like they shot the whole thing in sequence and it's like by the end they were all like yeah all right now we get it now we know what we're doing but i mean that's clearly not what they did i would assume <laughs> no it's no way yeah their their motivations were also strange because ermy is is so focused on the task at hand and making sure they get the job done no matter what, like despite all of the insane things that come up against them when they probably should have turned back and like got more people involved in this search. But yes, yeah, still by the end, he does feel like a dad. And then compare that with Joe Kane, who the entire time, like the moment there's anything a little bit weird, he's just immediately fuck this shit let's get out of here why do we you know this is someone else's bullshit like this is nothing for us to take care of and i i mean like i agreed with him but i was also thinking like why the hell was this guy 
brought along. If it, <laughs> <laughs> like if that's his attitude at the first moment of trouble, like a dude who clearly doesn't believe in the mission even a little bit. And it's such a curated group of people. You'd think if you've got some people going down on a sub for like a search and rescue mission like this, why, how did this guy get picked? Yeah. Well, Look, not are, everyone likes their job. You know? <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's but true. we are, we are certainly led to believe that this is like, the hand-picked best of NATO, <laughs> like on the elite this guys, yeah. And like when we first see the crew, they're just like in the the cafeteria. And I don't know if you clocked this, but there's like 75 empty Heineken beer cans on the tables. <laughs> like they're getting just fucking lit right as they're gotta go underway. I they mean, have a fucking Italian chef too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to hide all the empties. Like, yeah. But I do like though that Ermi does like he he clocks them as perhaps Ryan a bunch of like screw ups because he does say I love this joke NATO never a thing organized huh like that I love that that's my new thing for NATO now dude the acronym <laughs> never a thing organized awesome got yeah that's ass. good yeah it's good got their ass but even he it's like he seems like hostile to even being a part of NATO it's like. <laughs> He's the captain. He's ripping on NATO. He's not like, yeah, NATO is very important, guys. Well, I guess actually, though, in retrospect of what happens narratively in the film, it makes sense then that like all these people are essentially being sent there to be blown up right. by the contact corporation. So I think, yeah. you know, with that information that's divulged later in the film, it's safe to say that these are just fuck ups right. and they're like being consigned to oblivion mm. you know people that nobody will miss yeah so that must mean that Arlie Ermy is actually uh, in this world like a really shitty captain as well yeah. which he does prove to be he, he's so too sentimental he's, he's too sentimental he also seems to have like no idea how submarines work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> like, just a military man yeah I just feel like he, this is his first time on a sub you know because <laughs> like Wick is having to explain everything to him you know <laughs> Yeah, he's just a man who believes in discipline. That's it. You mentioning the, all the cans of beer makes me think about all those guys on the Calypso with Jacques Cousteau just like smoking the entire time, just like always yeah. having a cig in their mouths. They're like pulling one out the moment they get out of the water. It's like, ah, great, fresh air. You can take my oxygen off and just like rip a cig, you know? I love yeah. that. Yeah, oh, gauntlet approved. This is one of my, <laughs> my, my dad, my dad would always comment about submarine movies where he'd be like, do you ever notice how in like submarine movies, especially like World War II ones, like everyone's smoking and and more often than not, you'll be the guy working the like the the you know sonar listening station. Is like I always have like a captain, you know, like captain, just like leaning over his shoulder with a cigar. And I was just thinking, man, yeah, that, that would suck so bad. <laughs> just being on a sub back then, where there probably isn't great filtration and everybody's fucking smoking. But you you know, it would suck worse. Not smoking in that, <laughs> in that sub, you know? I mean, that's that's the trade-off, right? You know? Man. It yeah. really did hit me. Like, those things must have smelled so goddamn bad. Well, yeah, no one was smoking on the Siren 2. And then you think about how in Cousteau's film, you know, none of those guys disagree with the mission. Probably because they're allowed to smoke. Mm-hmm. That's what I can deduce. Yeah, and drink big goblets of wine that, that the lunch. I remember how big those pores were. On oh, those yeah, man, just to be at that lunch, that looked like just about the best lunch a group of guys could ever have. 
there's French excellence in this film too, as much as there's French arrogance. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that like of all the dogs they could have with them, they have like a beautiful chubby wiener dog that like whenever (laughs) like in the midst of storms is catching some Z's and just sliding up and down on one of the sea couches, you know? My God, dude, I love that. I love that moment. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. Even just the dog like futzing around a little bit with a loose lobster on the deck is really funny. Yeah, dog versus lobster is incredible, incredible content. You know, it's also, I think, worth pointing out that in, you know, we'll talk about it in greater detail later, but the, the shark clubbing sequence, when there are that those horrors occurring on screen, you know, it is that dog that Cousteau gives us an image of the dog clearly disapproving, being frightened, and going back into the cabin. So there is even an acknowledgement there of, like, you know, we, we went a little nuts here, but our dog, you know, he he's the pure of heart on the Calypso, and he didn't approve of this moment. Yeah, I, I think I want to, since we're here, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times. I, I really want to like dive in to, sorry, uh, no pun intended, right? But like <laughs> this shark sequence, because, yeah, we might as the, well. yeah. because the whole thing, the setup, the beginning, I mean, the reason that it gets to that point, right, is I think just the 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 ultimate sort of just... Yeah, like I said, wreaking havoc around the ocean, right? Because the sequence begins when they are like, oh, amazing, right? They spot a wonder, sperm whales, right? And and they want to follow these sperm whales. So their idea of like showcasing us this amazing, complex, highly advanced species is to basically like ram the herd with the boat right they just sort of like just drive this boat into the herd they're getting as close to these things as possible and as you mentioned yes then one of them's like well what else should we do i guess harpoon one let's try and fucking kill one of these things right yeah so they they kind of give up on that but then they spot a a like a young whale that kind of like breaks off the pack and they ram it with the boat and it's like oh it's 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 in distress we hit it with the boat couldn't have been avoided, they say. I mean, they really said, like, it couldn't have been avoided. And I was like, no, that absolutely could have been avoided. Yeah. And then on top of that, they, like, make another pass on it. Or because it's spooked and because it's, like, trying to desperately get away from them, it swims under the boat and gets chopped up by the boat's propeller. And, like, you see blood just just pouring out of this poor, like, baby sperm whale. And then they're like, well, here come the sharks. God damn them. You know, like it's the shark's fault. Like it's the shark's fault. There's yeah. blood in the water. That's what sharks do. And they're just like, the way they personify the sharks as not just like following like the natural order of things, but by having something inherently villainous inside. Yeah. I mean, that is so twisted. It's dude. so crazy because, yeah, of course, you know, bloody baby whale all the sharks come up and they're like ah these motherfucking sharks and like well you know what we never really get a chance to use our shark cage this is like pretty opportune for us you know so they take out the cage they're like yeah ah the sharks you know the mortal enemy of divers now we can use our cage and really get a close look at them and it's when they're in the cage and when they're face to face with the sharks that's like when their blood starts boiling even more and they're like ah now that i've looked one of these fuckers in the eye like we just have to kill all of them and that's what they do. They they raise the cage and then they just start 
dragging all of the sharks onto the boat, grabbing axes and just clubbing them ruthlessly <laughs> yes. for a long time. Yeah. After they shot the baby whale in the head, too, by the way, they were like, well, we need to put this thing out of its misery. And they just, like, in a nice medium shot, just put a hole right through this fucking whale, dude. Yeah. I mean, they, holy shit. They ran over a whale and killed it, caused a feeding frenzy, and then blamed it all on the sharks. And massacred them. Who they then massacred. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, 100%. Those are the facts. There's there's a moment very early in the rift when we first meet Captain Phillips and he pisses everybody Captain off Phillips. in the crew and he <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we haven't acknowledged that yet. Uh, yeah, it's Captain Phillips. He pisses everybody off, walks out of the room, and then it's Kane who says, "Why don't we save ourselves a lot of trouble and kill that son of a bitch?" Nah. <laughs> and that to me was the attitude of all the guys on the Calypso when they saw the sharks. They're thinking like, these are our mortal enemies. Like, let's save ourselves the trouble. Let's kill them all right now. They do, yeah, they sure do. I mean, it is like an, an agonizing sequence to watch. I mean, yes, the the turtle the turtle rodeo that they take part in on the quote uncharted island is is pretty fucked up. But like, I couldn't help in this moment, and I don't know this. But I couldn't help but but look at this entire sequence when it finally came to its its you know really like bloody conclusion of of suspecting that somehow they orchestrated this whole thing you know like they said it was an accident they said it you know oh, couldn't uh-huh. couldn't have been avoided you know but I, I I couldn't help but feel through it all through the like the the process that that yes obviously they're fucking idiots but like. It seemed to me like there was maybe something in there. I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about it. But, like, they ran that fucking baby whale down, man. Like, they, they had the they camera running. They had yeah. the cam- could have stopped the boat. They could have just said, okay, look, we, we, we got something here. But did they, again, if, hey, if, if some sharks show up here, we get the shark cage out. Oh, how perfect. How, lu- how lucky we are, in quotation marks. Right? Yeah, like, I mean, I was thinking about that a little bit. I think... You know, my take, if it's even worth the speculation, is I was thinking how this whole sequence could be interpreted as, like, the dangers of just wanting to get the shot, you know? Because that's what all the trouble was at first. I do think they probably encountered the whales, and then I don't know if they were intentionally ramming them, but they were intentionally getting too close because they wanted to get some great shots of them, you know? And then once it started spiraling out of control, I still think, like, the instinct for all of this, even if they tried to excuse it as, like, oh, it's divers, it's in our blood, we hate sharks, we just get fired <laughs> up, you know, we, we can't be controlled, it can't be helped. I, I was thinking that the their motivation the whole time was probably, oh, this will make great cinema. Yeah. <laughs> cinema goers expect violence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in, in that sense of it being orchestrated, I was thinking that every step along the way, they were probably thinking, well, if we do this, like, it'll look great on camera. Yeah. You know? The, well, they certainly delivered. That's for sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> and speaking of, like, speaking of bad choices and bad, shall we say, like, bad science, you know, the Rift really kicks into overdrive when they bring this this seaweed on board they bring this like you know sample of a, of a seaweed yeah, which is the already weed sample yeah the weeds <laughs> the weed sample they kept calling it the weed yeah. sample dude 
fucking awesome. But yeah, they bring some weed that they found at the bottom of the ocean on board, and lo and behold, it's bad weed, right? Uh, but like, they they take this thing on board, which has just like eviscerated the Swedish chef, you know, who went down to, to, to swim amongst it. And then like, there's this amazing moment, like later in the, in the film where the seaweed is just now, it's just spreading throughout the ship un, unchecked. And yeah. no one seems as alarmed as you probably should be about the fact that suddenly in the lab, the seaweed has grown into these massive tentacles and is spreading throughout the boat. I think my favorite moment is when one of the, the NATO guys, one of the, the NATO clowns, like walks into this room and sees this fucking, this like living creature just spreading everything, spreading everywhere and like spilling green ooze out of it. And his fucking first instinct is to just like walk up to it with his bare hand and just like poke it. Yeah. yeah. Not even poke it. He like he grabs yeah. a vine and like strokes the vine. Yeah. Like, what the he, fuck? He dude? gets a good feel. Captain, it's from the weed soundtrack. Yeah, and that's a direct connection between both films because Kyle was fucking laughing at me last night because I kept getting really weirded out that these guys have like no protection, you know, and especially like gloves, you know, I'm thinking yeah. like these guys are like ripping lobsters out of like coral reefs. These guys are dragging their hands through poisonous shit. No one wears like any gloves or anything, you know, of course. And Kyle's like, you have this fixation, but I'm like, look at what happens in the rift. These scientists guys just go around touching whatever they want. Yeah. Like, don't, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, like it reminded me of the beginning of Larry Cohen's the stuff when the guy sees the stuff and it's just like, Ooh, what's this? And just takes a bite, you know, <laughs> just like dips his fingers and he's like, I got to eat this. You know? Yeah. I don't have that gene apparently. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but yeah. like both films, they're just like, what's this weird shit? Like, this could kill me. I better just like grab it. You know? <laughs> like, You're right, though, Andy. There is like this really weird vibe where everyone is so chill about this spreading like infectious bad weed that is literally dissolving crew members before their <laughs> eyes. Because when they, when they bring Captain Phillips down, they're like, Captain Phillips, like you, you got to get down here and see this shit. And they go in and at this point one of the guys is completely entwined wrapped up just like pus his head is pulsating yeah oh an amazing effect where they must have put a balloon in his like over some like fake skin in his skull and it's like looks like it's gonna pop you know that was that was so good i wanted to poke it too you mentioned like wow his instinct is to just like grab it when i see stuff like that like that kind of gore effects i do kind of want to like, I want to touch it, you know? But yeah, when Captain Phillips sees it, he's like, ugh, man. Well, lock this door. How'd this happen? Robins, punch up the aqueduct system. You know? And then he's like, <laughs> and then he's like, let's get back to the guys in the caves, like back to the task at hand. Just like lock the doors where this shit's uh, around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, that is as, as you know, that th that is the utmost precaution they take. It's just like, turn off the lights and shut the door. Yeah. <laughs> 
Turn I like the when, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking Wick comes back from like being outside, and they're like, uh, "Yeah, four of the rooms are quarantined." <laughs> they just kind of yeah. like, like walk, shuffle away. Yeah. You know? I think it's in the water system, you know. And the poor <laughs> Italian chef, you know, that that that's again such a funny moment of again. You talk about things that kind of just like get laid out and then just like don't we don't get to see any sort of like payoff. The poor Italian chef, like. The, the, you know, like the science officer, like his ex-wife, she's just like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in the water system, you know? And then the, like the Italian chef's like, I don't feel so good. You know, he comes in. <laughs> and again, like, Arlie Irving just takes like one look at him and is like, What the hell happened down there, Francisco? Nothing. I was drinking a glass of water. When all ship's water not bottled? What's wrong with that? Uh, come with me. And he just like locks him again in a room. <laughs> and the guy, he tells Jeff, they don't even explain what's going on to the poor guy, you know? Yeah. And Arlie Ermey just looks at him and goes, I'm sorry, Francisco, and shuts the door. <laughs> like, yeah. the, half the movie is like. And we never gonna, see him again, right? No, well, we do, but th- that's going to be the big payoff we'll get to at the yeah. end. But like, yeah. you know, I but, don't feel so good. Yeah, but like nobody checks back up on him, you know? No, like, no one, yeah. A sure goner, dude. Yeah, just, they don't I mean, like give him good water or anything. <laughs> no, no, dude. I mean, like a chunk of the movie is just like Arlie Ermy walking around the ship, like looking in the door and be like, whoop, that room's fucked. Shut the door. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> damn. And even then, like, th- so they get out and they go into this cave. And like, this is again, just a, a sequence just ripped directly out of aliens. You know, it's like when they go to the hive for the first time because yeah. they gear up, they got their guns, they're feeling confident, you know, they got their tech and they go through the cavern like system, which is very much again, just like the alien hive. And then lo and behold, they're coming out of the goddamn walls, right? These like creatures start popping out and just ripping people to shreds. And again, another very hilarious moment of shall we say like mercy is, you know, one of the, one of the crew guys gets like infected because I guess these things, like if they just hit you, they get their goop on you, you get infected. And so like one of the, the German crew members, I guess, like one of these creatures hits him in the face and he is suffering. He's like in agony, you know, and he's writhing around on the ground and the other crew member like looks at him and he's just like, help me. You know, it's the pain is unbearable. And she's like, I got you. And she <laughs> shoots him in the face to put him out of his misery, like shoots him in the head. But it's not just like a bullet in his head. His head fucking explodes, dude. Yeah, like- it's amazing. It is like one of one of my favorite things in horror movies like this is when the pain is so extreme that the first thing that comes out of the guy's mouth is like, kill me. Like, I can't just kill me now. I can't take it. And that's what he says. And like, yeah, her gun, because like Ermer, or like Ermy mentions at one point, like, hey, like, you know, don't just go like nuts with these guns. They are like extremely <laughs> highly pressurized weapons. Like this ammunition can really only work like this far down, you know, below the the, the sea level. And yeah, his head. Oh, because like you think you think the reveal is going to be that all of these little creatures are going to burst out of his stomach because it's that same yeah. kind of alien slash videodrome gag where his whole chest is like warbling. Uh, but yeah, she does just like blow his head off and it just like explodes <laughs> everywhere fantastic i wrote that in my notes where i was just like trying to describe that image of this like mercy killing and honestly that's all i could write was like blows his fucking head off because yeah. it wasn't i mean 
to describe somebody as getting their head blown off, this is one of the most clean examples of what that looks like. I mean, the head's there, the head is, all of it is gone by that gun, <laughs> you know? It is so awesome. It all started with the mutant head-butting Fleming. Yeah. And he's just like, <laughs> Yeah, when they, like, finally decide to just, like, come out of hiding in the caves. So awesome. Because the whole corridor feels like a giant whack-a-mole simulation because there's all these holes all around them and things are just like popping in and out and they're just shooting into these dark holes with flashlights that, I mean, I guess they weren't probably anticipating that they would be exploring caves that far below, but some of those guys have like what look like shitty camping flashlights that are running low on batteries. I'm glad you brought that up. Those (laughs) those were like pen lights. I was like, these are the worst flashlights I've ever fucking seen, you know? And I think it's a conscious choice, right? Because you can't have full power flashlights showing everybody the seams in that uh, underwater, you know... (laughs) recessed naturally pressurized subterranean cavern you know we don't want to get a good look at it you know but man there's just like one hilarious reveal after another in that whole sequence in the cavern right because like on top of this you know all that they just suddenly come to a crack like a little crevasse and they're like wait i see a light in here and just like in this natural again like crazy anomaly type cavern there's just like an office. Do you remember the way they find like the office? Yeah. With the computers and yeah. everything? It's just like this like fully formed office with office furniture, computers. God knows what they're fucking hooked up to, right? And then yeah, that's true. just a skeleton <laughs> in a lab coat sitting at it, dude. Just such an awesome, awesome gag. <laughs> Yeah, the idea of them like carting down generators that the corporation is providing so they could set up a lab that far below is extremely funny to think yeah. about. Like just straight out of fucking Office Depot, dude. We're, like- we're like all the creatures supposed to have been created by their genetic mutations that, that like those scientists yeah. were doing down there? Yeah. Or were yes. some of them supposed to be like indigenous to those no. caverns? No. Okay. That so that's more the sense. DNA yeah. accelerator. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the DNA, the DNA accelerator. As we discover, they've been experimenting with the worst kind, transgenetics. Right. That's what yeah. they say it's called. Where they're just taking different species and like throwing them into this fucking machine, I guess, and seeing what comes out. Like, yeah. that's as far as I understood how the machine worked. Like, you just yeah. throw things in, and it just splices them together, and something spits out. And mm-hmm. yes, all these creatures are are part of that, including the massive starfish, as we described, the the huge, yeah. huge, huge fucking starfish creature. Now, you know what I would have liked to see is the mutants from the rift popping out of the shipwreck from the silent world. Because, yeah. you know, when I told you guys that I was kind of afraid of the ocean, like, here's one example of what I'm talking about, right? They they go hunting for this shipwreck, and they find it, and then they explore it in this, like, really wonderful sequence that had me just, like... Sweating. Yeah, like it's just dark, you know, and the fish are being really weird. You know, like the fish are like not moving, they're like lounging. Like it's very bizarre. The whole shipwreck, again, giving me the heebie jeebies. And I, in in this sense, uh, in a good way, because it's like very striking. And, And what a film like this is all about. Like, 
underwater exploration. Check this shit out. Uh, yeah. And it's moments like that where you're like, yeah, this is the OG, like this you know <laughs> like we take it for granted totally and i kept thinking too about like what even beyond just the visuals the sound design in that sequence with the boat because it's also worth pointing out that yeah. the silent world i'm pretty sure is entirely post sound i don't yeah. think they ever had a microphone like at any point even when they were on deck i mean well obviously that's like basically what i'm referring to they were never obviously never capturing any sound underwater but that scene when they explore the boat has some of the most creative sound design um because yeah. they even have a ringing bell at one moment kind of highlighting the fact that this is all absurd but it's beautiful you know but i thought yeah, the way the ship creaks as they're exploring it, it felt like a sci-fi movie with the sound design and the music paired together. Sort of ironic when you consider that this movie's called The Silent World, and they describe at the very beginning, you know, going into this, like, world of silence, and then, you know, everything's got a fucking sound, right? Everything yeah. is uh, <laughs> fully yeah. added in, you know? Humming electric scooters under the sea. <laughs> yeah, not very silent if you think about it. Yeah, good point. I love how those electric scooters sound like lawnmowers or just yeah. like general landscaping gear. J'ai toujours rêvé de faire sans fatigue des explorations à très grande distance. Nous disposons aujourd'hui de scooters électriques que les plongeurs manœuvrent avec tout le corps. Ils ont une heure d'autonomie. Ces scooters nous ont permis d'augmenter considérablement notre rayon d'action. Nous pouvons les poser au fond, comme on gare une moto le long d'un trottoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like and this looked, oh God, those look so fun. You know, yeah. the, yeah. like, because they, the, I'm trying to think of even how to describe them, because they look like air tanks. They look like tubes that have handlebars at one end of it. And those guys are just zipping around. And when they do like a parade of guys, when they're all holding onto each other's flippers and you got yeah. like four guys hanging on the end yeah. of one of those electric scooters, that looks very nice. Yeah, there are some like moments of like synchronized swimming that kind yeah. of pop up throughout where they're just flexing, dude. Again, they're just showing up. They're stunting, dude, down there in the in the ocean. <laughs> the Jacques Cousteau water show. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, Marsh, because I, I did want to say, like, you know, I, I think it's important to, like, mention some of this stuff, but, like, you know, talking about that sequence of, you know, exploring the ship and how it does almost become, like, sci-fi, almost like horror, like, James Cameron, who we were mentioning earlier, who I think is, you know, arguably the cinema, at least, you know, the narrative cinema, more traditionally, Hollywood anyway, like the the greatest undersea explorer, right? Of of Hollywood. And outside of Hollywood too, right? And, and yes, and outside of Hollywood, right? I mean, like he's he gone deeper talked, than most. Like when he was talking about the abyss and making the abyss, like he said, you know, well, really, this began for me as like a child. And when he was young, like reading about undersea exploration and and i got to imagine he didn't mention it by name but like this movie particularly must have been very prominent in that like young james cameron because he said he basically wrote the original story for the abyss 
in in one form or another, like when he was like 12 or 13. So I, I got to imagine like he saw this movie and was just kind of like, oh, yeah, like a whole movie like this. But it's got aliens and creatures and all the other like B movie shit that he was into the kind of mismatch, you know, mishmash that would go into, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 rift. the rift, right? Yeah. I'm fucking forget about it. Right. Because the rift is a knockoff of the abyss. But what's funny is like the abyss is like riffing on other things as well. And particularly Cousteau. And, and then you mm-hmm. think about like 1985, what happened in 1985, right before he began production for The Abyss. That was the discovery of the Titanic and those images, those eerie first images. Scary Titanic. Right, of that ship. And like you could just see like that then, you know, really launching him into overdrive, that it was like the discovery of the Titanic in 85, which then kicked off this cycle of like late 80s, early 90s undersea exploration films, which he would then come back to with the fucking Titanic movie he made, where he literally just went down there to check out the fucking Titanic, right? Like he made this big ass expensive movie just so he could go like do this Jacques Cousteau film on his own, basically, right? And then he went the way of the water. He went full water. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah. He's he's full water, dude. He's, he's water-pilled, dude. You know, making fun of the rift, it's it's really funny. It's very easy to do in terms of like... I would never. How thre- Yeah, I mean, just budget, right? Like how threadbare it is. I read for the abyss... Like just the cost of like the tank alone that they had to shoot in, like to rig it, just like setting up one of the tanks was like $2 million, right? Because you were talking about like the cost, right, yeah. of, of this kind of thing. And also the danger, like the inherent danger on, on the abyss. I read there were just like injuries galore. People almost fucking died making that. Like Ed Harris, like was ready to fucking like murder James Cameron because like they were suffering. They were going to like those depths and Cameron, I read like a really bitchy thing was just like, you know, these people are all complaining, but what about us? You know, me and the crew, we're at an even lower depth filming them, you know, or some shit like that, dude. Talk about Chad shit, you know? <laughs> what a fucking dickhead. I thought you, like, meant that the scene with the uh, with the guy getting, like, killed by the weeds in the rift cost $2 million, like, just because oh, no. that's, like, the one of the only scenes that probably had an actual tank, I mean, you know? I I didn't see it. I, I, I don't know if either of you did, but I, I can't even imagine what the full fucking budget was on the rift. You know, maybe $2 million for the entire thing, but probably less. less than that. Did you read, Andy, that the rift was a, D, a Dino De Laurentiis-funded thing? Mm-hmm. Um, that it was like he'd also produced Leviathan and then was like, let's just do it again, but with no money. Yeah. And Did- that was sort of like, yeah, it was born out of... Again, even more shameless, like a knockoff of a knockoff. Not exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because the Laurentis name is on the rift, but Dino's isn't. To yeah. show you that there's like even a hierarchy right. in the Laurentis. I think this was like Francesca Laurentis, right. subsidiaries too, and yeah, of various companies, yeah. various De Laurentis holdings, yeah. yeah, various money laundering operations, <laughs> dude, for sure, yeah. yeah. It does have that. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's that's the best way to describe that. Like, 
it's a it's a ripoff of a ripoff of a knockoff of a of an homage kind of thing. That's that's really what this is. But I mean, again, and I've seen quite a few of them. I mean, like Leviathan's okay, but Leviathan struggles. I don't know if you've ever seen Leviathan, Ryan. No. Okay. Oh, yeah, just classic. Yeah, yeah. Peter Weller, you know, doing the the underwater creature thing, you know. But like, the Leviathan struggles with the same kind of thing that this movie has, where it just it's like it's a 90 minute movie and like 60 minutes are just people like sitting around, like talking in like, you know, an elaborate set. Uh, But Leviathan does not deliver the way that the riff does when the, the the blood starts to get thrown around. I mean, Leviathan, it's just like, yeah, rubber suit territory, but like, man, again, cannot emphasize enough. Like, the variety of creatures and like the way they explode, they melt, they, they morph, they trans geneticize here. I mean, it, it really rocks. I mean, even just the little small mutant baby that they, they, yeah. they find in an egg. Right. And it's just got those big, like weird googly gill eyes. Like, yeah. Man. If anything, like kind of underused, I was thinking like they were so sparing with so many of their creatures. There was such a large variety and they were like using the, the methodology and the mindset of just less is more. Right. Like we'll show them for a little bit. It'll have a stronger impact and we'll move on in the next one. But they could have I would have been perfectly pleased if there was a whole scene with the baby fetus that they find in those balls, if they had maybe taken some of them back because they were kind of like, they look like human. Yeah. I think that was maybe the implication too, because maybe it was the previous scientist or Anna, one of the crew members who gets sucked into the DNA accelerator. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Oh, maybe they're already producing from that, you know, but I was really struck by what I can only describe as like the final boss that like reveals itself (laughs) on the ceiling of the cavern. And I was thinking like, I really loved it because it reminded me of a Sega Genesis, like, you know, like level boss where it's like this massive, disgusting thing. That's really cool looking, but it's just like immobile. It's just like stuck to the roof, you know? And I was Mm -hmm. just like, it really, yeah. I don't, again, it's like 1990. So, you know, it is a very like Sega Genesis feeling to me in a good way. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. It's like, just like this big, long tentacled head. That's the only thing that's sort of like moving around. (laughs) And again, they use those, uh, like very powerful guns to dispatch it pretty yeah, quickly yeah. as well. It's not it much of a fight. Last long, no. no, no. They were playing on easy mode. I think on the other hand, you know, maybe we, maybe we've been underselling the most obvious aspect of Silent World, which is that like. It, you know, like the rift, it is a great cataloging of, you know, different fish and different, you know, it hits that like National Geographic sort of element, right? Just like a documentary about fishies and the men who swim around them, you know, like when yeah. they become friends with the grouper, uh, you know, I was going like, to say he's sort of like the final boss of, of the silent world, <laughs> the Jojo final friend, yeah, yeah. Jojo grouper. <laughs> But, you know, like all that stuff is is there and more, you know, we're we certainly, I think, you know, immediately focused on the more negative (laughs) aspects of the film. (laughs) But if you were to watch this, it it delivers like as a nature documentary just on like a pure level alone of like what you get to see, the colors, the movement. Um, 
just very basic stuff. And like, yeah. that's, that's throughout all these episodes as well. You know? Yeah. It's so beautiful. Like it cannot be said enough how pretty this movie is to look at. And uh, to be honest, I'm like actually a fan of the life aquatic. Uh, I mean, yeah. I haven't seen it in years, but that was like a favorite for the longest time of Wes for me. And Watching this, it is actually like kind of nice. You know, I think his the way he interpreted what he saw by doing the stop motion kind of cute fish in the life aquatic. It I mean, it really feels like that. It's like that is like an aesthetic representation of what the French film stock does to these sea creatures and like those red lights that they bring out there. The colors are popping throughout this movie it's pure eye candy so and it's almost as if the film is like self-aware of it at one point because when they do use the dynamite on the coral reef and to do the census of the fish they're like yeah well you know it's too bad that the like stunning beautiful colors of these tropical fish disappear pretty soon after we dynamite them and put them in like jars of formaldehyde for the census takers <laughs> you know they're like yeah they get like really gray too bad you know because uh, they do look nice and um they really do i mean yeah the, the variety of fish on display like i love those zebra fish that were in the boat those were the fish that i feel like were being really weird when you said they were like mm. exploring that that sunken boat there's like these zebra fish that look like ghosts you know, I mean, I got to say for me, this movie now is on my list of just, you know, the greatest like hangout films of all time, because yeah. that's really everything we've mentioned aside, you know, it's like, well, and included, I guess. But like, yeah, it's it's also just these guys fucking hanging around, like doing goofy shit. I mean, like there's even like a moment where it drifts into jackass territory. Like yeah. they, they, <laughs> they 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 get one of the sucker fish. They pull it off one of the sharks that they kill. And there's just like a moment where there's like a guy sitting on deck, you know, smoking or whatever. And a guy just like sticks the sucker fish on his bare back. You God, know? His ass. <laughs> yeah. And he Holy like kind of yank it off, dude. And he's like bleeding. And they're like laughing about it. I mean, like, oh, dude, man. Like, that's brilliant. I did not make the jackass connection, but that scene with the suckerfish is identical to them with the like hair trimmer, like shaving people like the back of their head with the Jaws yeah. music in Jackass. Exactly the same. So yeah. good. And then it's just like cut to a guy playing a fucking cello on the boat. <laughs> That's right after the shark attack, which is very, very sort of interesting. Exactly. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The scene following the shark attack is crazy because they're all just like lounging and sleeping. It's like after a hard day of ruthless, brutal murder, you know, we all we all rest easy. Yeah. But it's true, like, the the hangout vibe, I mean, Cousteau says in the voiceover, it's the divers who are the greatest instrument of all, you know? And, and above all, yeah, it's a, it's a valorization of his, his friends and his collaborators. They even mention at the beginning, like, oh, here's, you know, whoever, uh, here's this guy. I've been on a hundred dives with him. And you're just like, God damn, these guys are just like underwater freaks, you know? They're best <laughs> buds. Um, and you really get that, you know? And... Uh, in the rift, you know, by the end, at least, we get some cooperation, but uh, most most people don't make it. Yeah. Well, and also, surprise, surprise, yeah. Ray Weiss has proven to be the uh, the yeah. double agent. Telegraphed, right? like, 20 <laughs> minutes in, you know? And, and that's another peculiar thing that, like, 
is so obvious and then it just fails to materialize for like a significant portion of the runtime until really the end he sort of springs into action Um, but I love that one moment where they come back and they finally like you know the three who are like alive come back into the uh, you know the submersible and they're like where is he looking for Ray Wise they're like we can't find him anywhere and he just comes from off screen with a gun, like, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take, some, take some hostage. Like, they checked all the surveillance cams. Like, he was just standing next to them. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it doesn't matter. I thought, I thought Wick was supposed to know this boat, you know? Yeah, I thought totally. he was supposed to know every nook and cranny of this boat. <laughs> I'm not picking him up anywhere. He's opened all the quarantine doors. Now the whole ship's exposed. Not the whole ship, Nina. Easy, Wick. I'll blow her away right here. For example, the escape pod is quite safe. I've supplied it with bottled water and food for a week. Ah. Point blank isn't a difficult shot, Captain. Sir, unless, of course, you really want to find out firsthand. But yeah, fucking Ray Wise gets it, though. Like, that is... Whenever you see a movie that's full of goop and goopy special effects, all I ever want is to see a character have their face, like, shoved into it, like, against their will. And it is so nice when they finally do that to him. Dude, and I gotta say, that moment, like, I reflected on that moment, like, you know, pretty intensively afterwards. Like, I really was thinking about it because, like... Yes, as Marsha described, Ray, Ray Weiss, he's got the gun on them, and you know they, they pull all these different kinds of switcheroos. After they get locked into the room with all the, the creepy seaweed shit, you know, the bad yeah. weed, and again, look very unconcerned about being in that room. They're just kind of like, just keep your distance from it. We'll be fine. As they slowly figure out how to get out of there, they pull the switcheroo. There's a, there's a very like slow old man fist fight between Arlie Ermey and, and Ray Weiss, and Arlie Ermey gets the best of him and they're, they're going to, they throw him in the room where he locked up Francisco. We get the payoff. Finally, Francisco's dead, obviously. And we never saw it happen because we knew he was dead, but his body's laying there on the ground, like all, yeah, mutated and pussy and everything like that. Arlie, if you notice it, Arlie Ermey, like overpowered him and threw him in the room. He was done. All he had to do was get up walk out of the room and lock the door. Ray Wise is like knocked on his ass. And Arlie Ermey, like his character, like thinks about it for a second. And then he's like, no. And he goes in and (laughs) and he doesn't need to, but then he goes in and he grabs Ray Wise by the back of his head and shoves his face into Francisco. He makes him kiss Francisco's like goopy ass mouth so that he can like, just basically poison his ass with this horrible fucking death. Like, it's so vindictive. It was like the shark thing, where it was like, that was just a revenge moment, but it was so unnecessary. Yeah. show him who's boss. It was so fucked up, dude, but it was awesome, dude. I loved it. It was like a spite move. That was it. It was just spite. He fucked up the whole mission, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? He like got you said, a lot of people him. killed. Like you said, by yeah. that point, he was like the father, so he was like, you deserve a miserable death even if i'm going to seal my own fate in doing this thing you know yeah it wasn't about the mission anymore it was about family the family he lost that's right so he could send the divorced couple off on the sea pod (laughs) into the into the sunset (laughs) i guess yeah 
But I do love yeah. that the silent world ends in friendship because they are a bit cruel to some of the creatures throughout. And the fact that they make great friends with JJ, the grouper, uh, by yeah, feeding Jojo him a bunch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jojo. Yeah. With Jojo, the grouper. I call him JJ as well. Yeah. After, yeah. They, lo- after they locked him up, though. For I didn't like while, that. Like, yeah. They didn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. They, they put him in prison for <laughs> He kind of seemed fed up when he scooted away at the end Dude, there, he too. Looked so, he looked so bummed when they locked him in the cage and, he, and they were like using the chum to feed all yeah. the other fish in front of him. Like, that seemed kind of shitty. Yeah. He was already hanging out. You didn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Just another excuse to get out the shark cage, really. Just to play with yeah, your toys. That's true. That's true. Because, yeah. like, yeah, what was he really... He was just getting in the way of them feeding some other fish. Like, that's not JoJo's problem, you know? Let, let him off the hook. But I did... I was also thinking, too, like, do you think fish enjoy the sensation of, like, being petted and rubbed? The way they do how they, like, scratch... Jojo's cheeks and like rub his back. Like, do you think they Why like that? Why are you that? asking me? Uh, I, don't I don't know. know. I just wonder. Like, most animals that feels good to them, do like, do fish feel that way? Do they like being touched? You're going to have to ask Guillermo del Toro, I think. He might have a <laughs> yeah, subject for further research. <laughs> he, he's the expert on fish fucking. So. Yeah, he, he truly is. Wow. Yeah. The world's foremost fish fucking expert. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Marsh, do you like going to the aquarium? I mean, I guess not, because I haven't been in like 20 years. But it doesn't you know? like freak you out. No. You know? okay. Wow. I just get sad, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but you don't see like big fish and get like scared. No, I'm not scared of big fish. I'm scared of the abyss. Yeah. I'm, 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 you know? I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I don't like swimming in anything where I don't know where the bottom is. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't yeah, have a concept of, of the bottom. Yeah. So even like when I do swim in the ocean or the lake, I go about as far out until like I can't like touch my tippy toe on the water. And then I just kind of hang out there, you know, but yeah. even that can be a little, little dicey sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Well, these were our uh, underwater movies. These were our deep sea dives, Marsh. When you, when you think about this, when you think about this subject... What comes to mind for you? Yeah, uh, a couple. Um, I was thinking about this, of course, you know, the last week, and I was remembering fondly a very, a very sort of like mediocre film that I like a lot is Run Silent, Run Deep, the Robert Wise, being wise, uh, Robert Wise film. Uh, really, though, a Hecht Hill Lancaster film. And it's a, a submarine film. You've seen it before, but it's Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster jockeying for leadership of the submarine. And uh, just real macho bullshit. Uh, I like it a lot. You know, really good performances by, by those two. Um, and also because I, I told this story to you guys off mic last week, but I just have to uh, recommend, uh, you know, classic high school stoner experience for me was watching Barry Levinson's Sphere. I don't think I've seen it since like 1999, but boy, was I blown away then, you know? <laughs> so just had to, uh, had to bring that one out. You had well. some of that, you had some of that bad, uh, rift weed, you know? <laughs> yeah. The bad weed sample from the rift totally, but it enhanced the sphere experience. So, uh, 
Yeah, for for sure. Awesome. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, guys. I had a good time exploring the underwater depths with you and caverns, the unexpected caverns as well. Uh, but next week, of course, it is Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, I have a bit of a surprise for both of you uh, with this topic. Um, this week, I actually was hit up by one of our listeners, uh, and he reached me on Discord. He sent me a DM on Discord, and he asked, do you guys take request topics? And I was like, well, you know, we always you know, entertain them. But I thought, man, we haven't really like done that yet. You know, we haven't like gone to, to, to those depths of encouraging <laughs> our listeners to maybe offer their own topics. So I said, okay, well, what do you got for me? And he laid it out and, you know, I thought it could be a fun one, but I also want to include our fans here a little bit. So this topic comes from, a. Uh, uh, a, a, a longtime listener, former student of mine, a little Greek guy named Dionysi. And the topic, I'm going to interpret it a little bit for him, uh, is <laughs> anger. Anger. He asked me about movies that are very angry, very angry movies. And so I thought, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. We've spotlighted, you know... Places, spaces, ideas, concepts. How about like an emotion? Let's just really try to zero in next week on anger as a subject. He also included the idea of like a filmmaker, a director who is very angry, very angry. <laughs> and that's why he's making this movie. He is, a, as I mentioned, Greek, so he brought up Angelopolis to me. You know, he's like, well, you know, in the Angelopolis film, uh, he's the hunters. He was very angry about the state of Greece. Yeah. So <laughs> we've talked about we've talked about upset Greek men on the pod before. We Costa Costa Gavras, very well, yes, you know? very angry men. So next week we're gonna get angry on the pod. Thank you, Dionysi, for your suggestion. We're going to go with it. I am steamed just hearing that. Yeah, I guess I'm ready to club some sharks. <laughs> Fire in my blood. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Nous avons fait jusqu'ici qu'effleurer la surface de la mer. Un jour, nous descendrons beaucoup plus bas. De nouvelles découvertes nous attendent au monde du silence.